Don't van go anywhere because you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm your host. So happy to be back with you fine folks. This is the show where every week we guess each other's top tennis lists. But today I'm joined by a returning guest sidekick host, Anna Keller. Anna? Hello. Hello. It's so good to be back. Thank you so much for having me back yet again. I feel feel honored to be back for a third time. Third time's a charm. Or it could be three strikes and you're out. We'll see. <laughs> I think we're pretty charming, so I'm betting on the first one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let the listeners decide. But No, it's up to us. We're very charming, I think. I guess you're right. And this is my podcast and you are the podcast sidekick host. So if, if we say we're charming, then God damn it, we're charming. <laughs> Listeners just have to deal with it. Anna, you've become a bit of a regular on the show. You were recently on episode 184. We talked about personality tests. And before that, you were on episode 172. We talked about psychology experiments. And uh, you've become a bit of a fan favorite. Oh my God. So we've had to have you back. That's very flattering. Hi, fans. <laughs> And stay tuned for uh, after the outro music, I will play Anna's physical address and personal cell phone number so you can reach out. If you're a super fan, you can reach out to her. My social is on there. I requested he put that in there. (laughs) I'm an open book, baby. (laughs) Open books, you and I. And it's perfect because Anna, the last two times you were on, you brought a list. But today I brought a list for you. And you mentioned before we were recording that you're a little nervous. I'm a little nervous. I think you're going to pay me back for, for some of the obscure things that I threw at you last time. Last time. It is true. You did not bring me the easiest list. <laughs> I did, really didn't. I felt kind of bad about it. I brought you an easy-ish list, so you're going to be okay. Okay. But if you're new or you don't remember, Anna is a professional counselor, also the co-host of her own podcast, Freudian Sips, podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. Anna, what is a fun fact that people might not know about you? Some random obscure fact about your personal life. I think a a random obscure fact. Where was your first murder victim? I can't tell you that because the cops don't know yet. So, spoilers. Gotcha. I'm looking at prints that I did and Nick, you can see this, but the listeners can't. I have like prints hanging up behind me. I did those uh, in college. I had a psychology themed final art show. So, I was a big old nerd even back then, especially back then. Well, you segued so perfectly because you mentioned art. You got art behind for the listeners that you obviously can't see Anna. She's got art all around her room and you like art. Yes. I love art. I was, I started as an art major when I got to college and then decided that was too competitive for me. So I became a psychologist instead. Well, I think that art major is going to help you today because today we're talking about the top 10 most famous paintings in world history. In world history? Oh, Nick, you shouldn't have done this for me. Oh, I'm so excited. That sounds so fun. I knew you liked art and I was actually inspired to do this when I listened to your Van Gogh episode months ago. And I thought, well, I need some, I've, I've, and I've had this list in mind for a while and I'm like, I need someone that knows art. And then I'm like, wait a minute, Anna knows art. Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm so excited. When you said Van Gogh at the beginning, you kind of tipped your hand a little bit because this is a Mm -hmm. Van Gogh hanger right here. I have one in Mm -hmm. frame. So this is perfect. I love this. So this is very interesting list. I'm really excited about it. Uh, My sources are CNN, timeout.com, madisonartshop.com, and of course, our friends at Wikipedia. Let me read you this little intro from CNN. They're the ones who actually compiled the list. Every year, billions of dollars worth of art passes through international auction houses while leading museums each hold tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of artworks in their collections. But precious few ever achieve the fame required to truly be considered household name. And as famous is, of course, a subjective term, CNN turned to Google to see which paintings topped search results worldwide over the past five years. So, the way that CNN is ranking these famous paintings is, is how often, how often been they're searched, searched on, Google. on Google. Okay. Yeah. So, I'll say to you and to the listeners, I'd say at least seven or eight of these I instantly recognized. Two or three of them I didn't recognize at first, but once I started looking at it, I recognized it more. So, I don't think you need to be an art nut to guess along with Anna here, who is an art nut and an art nerd. I'm an art nerd, and I've already written down a few a few guesses, but I think I, ha- I think I have a good idea of what some of the very top ones are going to be. Mm-hmm. I bet most people could guess number one, including mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Try to save that one if you can. I will. I will. 
whenever you're ready. I'm going to start with one that I think is probably high on the list. I hope it's not actually number one, but it is one of my very, very favorite classical art paintings, The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. Starry Night. Well, I think it's appropriate we start with a Van Gogh piece since I opened with Van Gogh. You did. You led right into it. The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh is number three. Number three. You got okay, it. See, I got you it. were so nervous. Well, I'm going to start guessing Van Gogh pictures if I run out of guesses. So that's where I was going to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, this is the only Van Gogh on the list. Oh, bummer. Okay. In fact, there's only one artist that has two entries on the list. Everyone else is a, is a one-hit wonder. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. The Starry Night, we've all seen it. If you need a refresher, refer to the show notes of this episode. I'm going to put links to every one of these paintings we discuss. But The Starry Night is, I'd say, well, the, according to this list, the most famous art from Van Gogh. It was painted in 1889. It's currently held in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. It's the only painting on this list that is housed in the United States. Therefore, it is the only painting I've actually seen in person. Oh, you've seen it in person? Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Have you? No. No, you haven't? Oh, wow. I'm okay. Not. Maybe I'm the art major. <laughs> Maybe you've been the art boy all along. <laughs> <laughs> we found the art boy. It's Nick. I, I don't know why that was funny. <laughs> it really wasn't funny, but it was. Thanks. Don't tell me that after I make you laugh. (laughs) Well, that was a courtesy laugh. Don't laugh at my jokes and then be like, actually, it wasn't that funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll learn that usually bad humor or confusing humor is what makes me laugh most. Fair enough. Duly noted. Now, I could easily transition this into a full hour plus on just Van Gogh because he's such a fascinating guy. In fact, you did that on your pod and I highly recommend that. But... I'm going to limit my notes mostly to the art itself, not the man, although I do, okay. I do have a few notes. Yeah. So the Starry Night depicts the view from the east-facing window of his asylum room at Saint-Rémy-de-Provence in France, just before sunrise, with the addition of an imaginary village. So Van Gogh was living in an asylum at this time after he self-mutilated his own ear, famously. He uh, checked himself in, was being treated for mental illness when he painted the Starry Night. He was inspired by the view from his room, as I said. I think it's really interesting because those two things, like I think they are things that a lot of people know about Van Gogh, but I don't think people connect how closely like his most famous work came after that very famous, horrible event in his life. Yeah, well, and most of his most famous work came at, well, I'm kind of just repeating what you said, but like most of it all came at the end. In fact, Mm -hmm. my note here says he was posthumously became one of the most famous and influential figures in Western art history. But while he was alive, that was not the case. His paintings did not sell during his lifetime. In a decade, he created about 2,100 artworks, including 860 oil paintings, most of which in the last two years of his life. So he was a prolific artist. Yeah, and did not sell a lot, but all his stuff is good. (laughs) So it's very sad that he didn't sell a lot. And it's saying something too, that his career was very, like, not going well. But he continued to paint, kind of like I continue to podcast. And here I am. (laughs) Oh, that hits home. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was all he wanted to do. And I mean, he was just struggling for for so many reasons. He wasn't just kind of like the typical like starving artist stereotype. He was very, very mentally ill for a lot of his life. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot going on. I mean, yeah, like you said, mom and I cracked into it for like an entire hour. In that episode, he was, he's fascinating. And he's one of the reasons that I wanted to go into art and therapy at once because of how his art shows the mental illness. Yeah, it's really interesting. That is interesting point that you kind of don't think about, uh, or the average person doesn't think about is like, psychology and art is so intricately entwined with Van Gogh. It's all the same. You can't talk about a Van Gogh piece without talking about his state of mind. Right. And everyone's heard the cutting, cut off ear story. Hmm. And everyone's seen this painting. So like I said, his paintings did not sell during his lifetime. And during his lifetime, he was generally considered a madman and a failure. Although some collectors recognize the value of his work. His fame came only after his death when he evolved in the public imagination into a misunderstood genius. And as you know, he died a very young man. In fact, within a year or so of the Starry Night painting, he killed himself at age 37. Yeah, he painted it very close to the end of his life. And like you said, he painted a lot in that very short time. 
Yeah. So before this episode, I also took to Twitter at TennisPod and I asked my followers to list what they thought the most famous paintings are in the world. And we had several people call out Starry Night, including Bernadette from Murderific, who was on this pod recently, and Cody on Twitter at Sir Lavoie also mentioned Starry Night. So it definitely comes to mind immediately for most people when you're thinking about like the most influential art in the history of the world. Yeah, I'm not surprised it was top three. That was kind of where I had it placed in my mind. Curious that, well, well, we'll revisit at the end of the episode, but curious to know your personal ranking of these. Oh, I can't do that. Yes, I can. I might. Yes, you can. Okay. <laughs> You're going to make me regardless. Hey, real quick, before we move on from Van Gogh, yeah. I don't remember. The story goes that he cut off his ear, although I think it's just a part of his ear, and he mailed it to his girlfriend or ex-lover, correct? Not quite correct, but the gist yeah. is there. Yes, yes, he... he sent it to her eventually, I think, but he cut it off as a, during a fight with his mentor, basically, which they were very volatile together and fights were very common between them, but this just got much more out of hand than the previous ones had, and he ended up sending it to, I guess, someone who he thought would appreciate it. And Anna, this is a safe space. You've already shared your social and address with our listeners, as we Mm -hmm. said. So tell me honestly, how many decapitated ears have you received from people in your life? that show up in your mailbox in envelopes. None. Oh, weird. So I guess that means they don't care about me. Weird. And I'm cutting my fucking ear off right now. <laughs> no! I'm sending it to you. <laughs> this just became a video podcast because we have to release that to the listeners. They have to see. <laughs> I just can't imagine like going out to my mailbox. Oh, it's the year 1890 something and I'm going out to my mailbox, which is probably just like a bucket on the side of the road in those mm-hmm. days. And, oh, I'm going to open and this And the postman envelope. comes and picks up the full bucket and puts down an empty bucket. Yeah, that's how mail yeah, works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you open up that envelope and there's a fucking ear inside of it. Hmm. I guess it's better than like a tongue or something. I don't know if we could rank what would be the best or worst. No, we could do that. Should we transition <laughs> the pod into that? That's our next list. <laughs> we polled 100 people on the street and said, what would be the worst Worst body part to get in the mail. I'm writing this down. This is so such a good idea. I think we can all agree on what the number one worst would be. (laughs) But let's not go there. Okay, so Van Gogh, he he loved his art and we love his art too. Mm -hmm. R.I.P. So why don't you give me another guess? Who joins Van Gogh in the top 10? Okay, so I think the next one I'm going to go with is The Birth of Venus. Is that in the top 10? It is. Where would you guess it falls, roughly? Mm, Five? I think you need to go back to art school because it's number eight. Mm, oh, lower than I expected. Okay. But eighth in all of history is still pretty good. <laughs> That's true. We made the top 10 in all of history, according to Google. Sidebar for a minute, but like all of history, we say that, but like think of all the millions of art pieces of art that were destroyed before oh, yeah. like modern times that were probably just as good, if not better than all the stuff we have now. I mean, it takes a lot for a piece of art to survive thousands of years. Is really true. It has to be preserved specifically. So there's a very short window of time where especially these older works had to have been discovered in time to preserve them. Yeah. And the birth of Venus, number eight, is the oldest on the list. It was painted in 1485. Okay. It's cool that you guessed this one right after Starry Night because it's so completely different than Starry Night. The style's different completely different. Yeah, there's a lot of chaos in the Starry Night, I think. The the swirls yeah, and yeah. the it's it's very it's cool and peaceful in in its way, but it's also you can tell there's a lot behind it and this one is very kind of refined and elegant. And also not as much room for interpretation, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I found in my research. A lot of like scholars or whatever, like art critics were mentioning that it's one of the more like straightforward pieces of art as far as its message. There's Venus and she's being birthed. That's it. That's what's happening. She's no being interpretation birthed, yes. needed. But instead of a vagina, we got what is it? Like a little uh like an oyster, what? isn't it? Like a clam yeah, or something. Yeah, oyster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. sounds right. That or that looks right. And she's an adult. Well, let let me describe it. So, if you're unfamiliar, this is painted by Sandro Botticelli in 1485, currently housed in the La Galerie degli Uffizi. In Florence, Italy. How am I doing on the accent? I'm impressed. You're doing really good. Thank you. <laughs> I know I'm not. That's okay. 
The painting depicts the goddess Venus arriving at the shore after her birth when she had emerged from the sea fully grown. Botticelli's posthumous reputation suffered until the late 19th century when he was rediscovered by the pre raphaelite I can't say this word. Raphaelites. Yeah. Oh, Raphael. Yeah. Who stimulated a reprisal of his work. According to ancient scholar Plato, Venus had two aspects. She was an earthly goddess who aroused, oh baby, humans to physically love, or she was a heavenly goddess who inspired intellectual love in them. Okay, intellectual love. That's kind of fun. That's sweet. Intellectual love. Now, what does that even fucking mean, though? Sounds cool, but... I guess it's when you, like, love someone's mind instead of their body, man. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) Some people are into some weird stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yuck. (laughs) Personality and mind and... Ugh. And this is uh, interesting, too. It says that nudity in art was rare at this time. Again, this is 1485. So it was daring that Venus is completely exposed minus her long flowing hair and a hand barely covering her most intimate body parts. Mm-hmm. I guess we failed to mention that. She's pretty much naked in the, in the art. She's quite naked. The girls are out, aren't they? She's just covering the downstairs, yeah? Uh, the girls. <laughs> <laughs> She's kind of loosely covering the girls, the, the tits, the boobs, oh. the jugs <laughs> up top. A bit more crass than the girls, but sure. But they're kind of sneaking through. Yeah, yeah. And some hairs over them and it's artfully covered, yes. Yeah, but she's not like really making a big effort to cover them. It's kind of like, I want to do the bare minimum so people can't say I didn't try. But really, I want you to see (laughs) it. Oh, I'm being coy. Ooh, (laughs) I've just been born. You can't see me. (laughs) Born as an adult goddess, yes. Out of a clam. (laughs) Sprung from a clam. As we all are as kids. <laughs> <laughs> so the birth of Venus, uh, it's, it's a beautiful painting. I call it kind of one of the least interesting, in my opinion, on this list. <laughs> beautiful. Very boring. Anyway. <laughs> it is boring. Like Starry Night, there's like a lot to sink your teeth into. Yeah, that is true. This is just like, I don't know. It's just a naked lady on a clam. I don't know. Hell of an ass, though. There's like some angels. There's some cherubs and stuff. Yeah, sure. But... I don't know. Angels are a dime a dozen in paintings. <laughs> That's really true. And it's not the last angels we're going to see today. Okay, there's angels making right. notes, making notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> hmm. And we're not talking about Bonnie, who's an angel in her own right. Oh, she is an angel. That's Anna's mommy. Oh, yes. Perhaps the listeners wouldn't know that. Yes. My mommy, who I do the podcast with. Mm-hmm. She is an angel that walks on earth. Yep. She's my favorite part of the podcast. The best part. Mine too, honestly. Hey, you said this is a safe space. (laughs) She makes it, man. (laughs) All right. All right, so give me another guess. This one might be out there. I don't think it's going to be on the top 10. The Garden of Earthly Delights. Mm, Excellent guess. That is not in the top 10. That is a Bosch painting. Mm Mm-hmm. Very fun. If, you don't, if you've never seen that painting, look it up and then spend the next two hours going, what's that? Ew, gross. Oh, what's that? Oh, gross. Mm-hmm. What is that? Oh, no. Now, hang on. Are you talking about walking through Dr. Buster's house or this painting? Both? It can be both. <laughs> there is so much going on in the Garden of Earthly Delights, though, truly. It's like a Where's Waldo book. <laughs> it really is. It's the worst Where's Waldo <laughs> ever. <laughs> The worst? I, the most... Well, Waldo's not there, so it is the worst. Oh, I see. Yeah. It, and Waldo books are also not quite as sensual as this mm-hmm. one is. Yeah, it is the, it's the Garden of Earthly Delights. There's a lot of... Sensuality might be <laughs> too soft of a word for the things that are happening in this picture. <laughs> That's one of our favorite words here on the show. Sensual. But the Garden of Earthly Delights, good guess, but not on the top 10. Okay. How about Water Lilies by Monet? No. No, ma'am. Mm, really? Yeah. Okay. It's a good guess, too. These are good guesses. I'm pretty sure about this one. How about The Scream? The Scream. Yeah, that is on here. Do you think it's above or below Starry Night? Mm, I would probably put it at two. It's four. Really? And I think four is proper when you, mm-hmm. when you see what number two is. So this is the fourth most fam- famous painting of all time, according to this list. It's from 1893, so now we've skipped a few hundred years from Venus. This is Edvard Munch, and it's displayed at the National Museum in Oslo, Norway. 
So the scream, Anna, describe it for the folks at home. It's a man, and he's on a bridge, and mm. he has his hands on his face, and his, his mouth is open very wide in the titular scream. Yes, everyone's seen it. Link in the show notes. But yeah, it's got, and it's very, um, what's the word? But like, it's uh, kind of abstract, right? Yeah, it's an impressionist. So the Starry Night, uh, Van Gogh is also an impressionist. So it's yes. got that same kind of like very brush heavy, chaotic kind of style to it. And apparently the artist, Edward Munch, was uh, inspired because he had been out on a walk at sunset when suddenly the setting sun's light turned the clouds a, quote, blood red. He sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. So while this painting is called The Scream, and while everyone looks at it and thinks this person's screaming, it's actually, at least according to some people, the figure in the painting is covering his ears to drown out the scream. Mm, yeah, from the scream nature. is the, the scream that Monk talked about saying, the scream that echoed around me. It sounds, <laughs> to me, again, this is my like, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. As a mental health professional, that sounds like a panic attack. I think you had a panic attack, my guy. That's interesting you say that. And by the way, I realized I was saying his name wrong. Not Munch. Monk. I didn't want to correct you outright, but I couldn't yes. bring myself to say it wrong for you. <laughs> you should have just said it wrong for the rest of the show <laughs> and then destroy any credibility you have. They'll come and take away my art degree if I do that. This guy, you, you mentioned there he had a panic attack. Agree, perhaps, because some scholars suggested that the unnaturally orange sky could have been an effect from a volcanic eruption. Some others say it's a psychological reaction by Monk to his sister's commitment at a nearby lunatic asylum. Oh. Which apparently was happening around the time he painted that. Oh, I didn't know that part about it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that would give me some panic too. The first two out of three paintings we've talked about involve someone in an asylum. <laughs> That's kind of just how artists are. Yeah. Although we don't know whether or not the figure in the scream has ears. Covering their ears, but you can't see the ears. He cut them both off, maybe. That's why he, <laughs> he had to one-up Van Gogh. Cut them both off. And he's screaming in pain. <laughs> and his ears are on the floor right there. Both my ears. Yes. Just below frame are his two ears sitting on the bridge. <laughs> also orange. <laughs> the scream has been the target of a number of thefts and theft attempts. Some damage has been suffered in these thefts as recently as 2004. That's the other fucking thing you don't think about is all these paintings are like constantly being stolen throughout history. It's, <laughs> yeah. a, it's, a, it's a wonder that not only do they survive all the damage from the elements and the thefts, but now we got to survive them from being stolen. So it really is remarkable that we can display these paintings at all in museums. Yeah, that's why when you go to a lot of these, there's a lot of security because, well... I want to steal one of the most famous paintings in all of world history, which really aim lower. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying, set realistic goals for yourself, I guess. Yeah, start a podcast. Yeah, start a podcast instead of stealing one of the top 10 famous art pieces in the world. So it hasn't been stolen since 2004. It's in Oslo now. But one of the pastel versions of this painting, because apparently there was a few versions it commanded the fourth highest nominal price paid in history for an artwork at a public auction. It sold for $120 fucking million dollars in 2012. Not even the, like, a different version of it? It said, um, let me see where it says this. But, like, it wasn't the scream that everyone knows. There are two paintings, two pastels, and then an unspecified number of prints. Oh. The paintings reside in the National Museum that I talked about. Uh, but the, one of the pastels was the one sold for $120 million. Wow. Insane. Wild. $120 million for a painting. I mean, I get it, I guess. No, I don't. <laughs> Would, I mean... I don't have the capacity to get it. That's an unthinkable amount of money for me. Do you think if you were a millionaire, Anna, you would seek out some of these paintings like that? Yeah, I think if I, if I had... Like, fuck around money. I would try to own one of the grades, at least. Yeah, we'll come back to that. <laughs> My last note on this is that the Scream inspired Ghostface Mask in the Scream film franchise, oh. which when I read that, it's like so obvious, like, oh, yeah. of course, but I had never, never heard that until now. Yeah, there's a lot of screaming yeah. going on. Take it from the m most well-known Scream there is. Yes. Okay, so The Scream, Starry Night, and Venus. My personal fave of those three is Starry Night, but we'll see 
We'll see how if that it shakes changes. out at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Having trouble because, like I said, I think I know what number one is. I'm trying to figure out what is just more famous than Starry Night, but not as famous as the number one. I'll try to come back to it. I have a question. Are these all pictures or are there like statues on the list? Mm-mm. They're all pictures, paintings. Mm-hmm. Well, it takes away some of my, some of my guesses. How about the Sistine Chapel? Yes. Well, <sighs> specifically the creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Creation of Adam is another one we've all seen. The scene depicts God and Adam with outstretched arms, their fingers nearly touching. And Adam is a naked boy. <laughs> As so many people in these old pictures were, apparently. Although it, it, it was interesting when you said that that was fairly uncommon, because I think we do think of things like this one and, and like the birth of Venus. And we're like, yeah, everyone's just naked back then, I guess. It's true. And also a lot of sculptures from around this time seem mm-hmm. to always have their junk out. So, yeah, I think maybe it's not as uncommon as we thought. Because, well, the stat- one of the statues I was going to guess was David, mm-hmm. also by Michelangelo, and David's junk is famous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, baby. Am I right? <laughs> oh, right. But the same guy who you just said, Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, although mm-hmm. if, that was, if that was the case, it'd be, make for a more interesting episode, I think, but not the turtle. Michelangelo, he did David, the statue, but he also did Creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel between 1508 and 1512. And uh, if I didn't say it's number 10, I think that might be a little low, honestly. Maybe because it's more specific. Like, I think a lot of people know about the Sistine Chapel and probably even know this painting, but don't know that it's called that. You know what I mean? Mm, Sure. That's true. That's true. Let me tell you a little more about this painting. I told you what's in it. It's God and Adam touching the fingers. And the creation of Adam is generally thought to depict the excerpt from the Bible, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, from Genesis 1.27. In addition to being one of the most famous paintings, it's also one of the most replicated images in history. Now, get this shit. This guy, Michelangelo, he lived in the 1400s and 1500s, right? This painting Mm -hmm. was from 15... It finished in 1512. So, this is a time with no running water, very poor diets and hygiene, illnesses everywhere. This motherfucker lived to 88 years old. <laughs> oh, dang. You know what it was? I think he, spite, like, mm. he seems like in all these, like, he didn't want to paint the Sistine Chapel. He seemed like a very, like, well, fine, I'll, go, like, I'll do it kind of guy. So I think he just kind of kept himself going like that. I just don't even, can you imagine being 88 in 1500? Imagine being bedridden in 1500. Like, there's no bedpans. I can imagine being 88 right now. <sighs> That's true. But at least we have like qualified nurses, not just True people that. like putting leeches all over your body and shit. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds horrible. Maybe that's why I live so long. Maybe the leeches work. Maybe the leeches do work. They don't. They don't. Nobody do that. <laughs> well, we don't know. Jury's out. Let's ask Michelangelo, I guess. So to see the original painting of the creation of Adam, you have to actually look up to the ceiling, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It had been dulled by centuries of exposure to candle smoke and other things. But after a long, extensive cleaning that ended in the year 1989, people were shocked to see the bright, vibrant colors Michelangelo originally used. So for a long time, this painting was thought to be kind of a, what's the word? Like not bright, but kind of dull. Like dull, yeah. Colors. Yeah, yeah. But it's not. Surprise. Now, when you're looking at this painting, you got God and Adam kind of having a bro moment in the middle. But (laughs) around... Around them, there's other figures in the painting, right? Yeah, I'm very caught by you calling that a bro moment. It's very good. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what they're having. There's many hypotheses about the identity and meaning of the 12 figures surrounding God. According to one interpretation that was first proposed by the English art critic Walter Pater and is now widely accepted, the person protected by God's left arm represents Eve, as in Adam and Eve due to the figure's feminine appearance and gaze toward Adam. And the 11 other figures symbolically represent the souls of Adam and Eve's unborn progeny, which is the entire human race. So that's heavy. Those 12 guys? That's us? That's all of us? Well, there's women in there too, at least one, because no. Eve's in there. That's true. Oh, wait, no, is Eve up ahead? No, no Eve's, Eve's like tucked her. under God. She's oh, you're right. She's got his arm around her. Yeah, but the rest of us all came from those people kind of having a little pylon with God there. <laughs> and some people think that the... So if you're looking at this, are you looking at it right now? No. 
I can. Okay. Well, you've seen it. Mm -hmm. It's okay. There's a pink kind of curtain-y looking thing behind God. Oh, yeah. That he's kind of in. It looks like a brain. A lot of people say brain. Some people also say the birth process is being represented here, like the womb. Oh, okay. I can dig that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on this painting? I like it. I think it's a brain. But again, it looks more like a brain. That's to me. my hammer, yeah. and everything's a nail. I like it. I like the way Adam's just kind of chilling. He's kind of making God do most of the work of the whole creation thing. Just like it's true. Thanks, man. He's got a real reclined position going. He's very snobby about it, isn't he? And he's snooty. He does. He seems like very disinterested in the whole creation thing. God's doing like the most important event that will ever be done ever right now with Adam. And Adam is just like, eh, kind of just flipping his hand up there. Take it or leave it. Letting his junk sit out. (laughs) He's just very smug. I don't like him in this painting. You don't like him that strong. He does seem a little smug. You feel like you deserve this. And maybe you don't, man. (laughs) (laughs) No. Look at everything that's happened since you, Adam. This is all your fault. (laughs) This is your fault, Adam. The world would have been so much better if you and Eve had never given us all these kids. <laughs> oh, that's very funny. Well, so someone on Twitter, uh, Simon at Precise Path, he said, the Sistine Chapel has got to be up there. Literally, it's a ceiling. <laughs> very good. Yeah. All right. So quick recap. We got 10, Creation of Adam, 8, The Birth of Venus, 4, The Scream, and 3, The Starry Night. Oh, I'm flagging a little bit. Think religious. Just like Creation of Adam. That does not narrow it down in art, my man. (laughs) Just think about, like, your go-to religious painting. It's replicated in media all the time. Very a part of pop culture. It's from one of the smartest inventors and painters that ever lived. Also a Ninja Turtle. Da Vinci? Is it the... The Last Supper. Oh, The Last Supper. Oh, yeah. Okay. What's wrong with you? So many things. We don't have (laughs) time. Where did you... (laughs) <laughs> Where did you learn art? Religious. Come so, on, Last Supper. Okay, religious. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so, no, well, well, you're like, yeah, the most famous religious painting. I'm like, I've seen so many pictures of Jesus. All, I grew up Catholic. I, this narrows it down. None. <laughs> yeah, but you agree it's the go-to, most famous, oh, yeah, yeah, most yeah. default. Yeah, yeah. Yes. The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci is number two. I think it deserves number okay. two. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And when I say it deserves, that doesn't mean I think it's the best. I just think it's the most well-known. Yeah, if we're talking, and I equate Google searches to kind of cultural osmosis, how many people know about it and are asking about it. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you went to a random person on the street and said, name three paintings, I'll bet Last Supper is one of them. And it's number two on this list. It was painted by our boy Da Vinci. It was painted between 1495 and 1498. It's currently housed in Santa Maria del Grazi in Milan, Italy. It was painted in an era when religious imagery was still a dominant artistic theme, to your point. The Last Supper depicts the last time Jesus broke bread with his disciples before his crucifixion. Leonardo, the original Renaissance man, again, not the Ninja Turtle, but would be better if it was. We should, we should make a top 10 list of like the paintings that nin- the Ninja Turtles did. Sure. They'd all be pizza and sewer related, though. I mean. <laughs> Pizzas and sewers. Okay. Yeah. I can work well, with that as pizza, an And they lived in the sewer. That's true. Leonardo is the only artist to appear on this list twice. So there's a big hint. The painting is actually a huge fresco. It measures 15 feet high and almost 30 feet wide. It's huge. It's got to be to fit all those guys on the one side of the table. There's a gal there, too, Mm. and we're going to get to her. In order to permit his inconsistent painting schedule and frequent revisions, it is painted with the materials that allowed for regular alterations. Due to the methods used, a variety of environmental factors and intentional damage, little of the original painting remains today, despite numerous restoration attempts, the last being completed in 1999. So, when you see The Last Supper today, very little of it is actually still the original paint, is my interpretation of that. That makes sense. And that kind of goes to what we've kind of been talking about, of just like keeping these paintings 
in a viewable state like it does it does take a lot of it's kind of ship of theseus style eventually it's like we need to replace most of the parts of it so yeah it is really interesting and also art restoration videos very satisfying to watch well and you have to remember too that when at the time this was painted in the 1400s people weren't thinking about museums or Mm -hmm. i mean People weren't thinking like, oh, this is going to be still seen and revered hundreds or thousands of years from now. So, yeah, like I said before, it's kind of just amazing that the stuff has survived as it has. Yeah. Uh, And that includes two wartime threats that threaten this painting because Napoleon's troops used the wall of the refectory on which the fresco was painted as target practice. Oh, no. Which is amazing. Stupid, right? Oh my god. Like, use any other wall. Right. Just use any other wall. Did they, wait, they knew it was there? They knew that's where that painting was? It doesn't specify, but (laughs) seems hard to not know it was there, right? (laughs) It seems like that's a thing where you, you said it was so freaking big. You don't lose it. You know where it is. Yeah, this thing is 30 feet wide, which is eight over almost nine meters wide. (laughs) It's huge. So yeah, these troops, these assholes are just shooting this wall and they could have just shifted and shot some other wall, but nope, they had to shoot this one for their precious target practice. Mm -hmm. But it was also exposed to the air for several years when bombing during World War II destroyed the roof of the Dominican Covenant of Santa Maria de Grazi in Milan, the museum where it's housed. So it survived both of those. Jeez. It's a tough painting. Kind of the... uh, I don't have a good analogy. The cockroach of paintings, right? It just keeps surviving. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Yeah. The Last Supper has been the target of much speculation by writers and historical revisionists alike, usually centered on purported hidden messages or hints found within the painting, especially since the publication of Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, in 2003, in which one of the characters suggests that the person to Jesus' right in the painting, which is left of Jesus from the viewer's perspective, is actually Mary Magdalene, his lover. Interesting. Hmm. That's something else, man. This guy in the 1400s, not only just painting this thing that's still going to be looked at hundreds of years later, but also sprinkling in little hints and clues throughout the damn thing. (laughs) You know? Also, the people in the Da Vinci Code could decode it later. True. It's a central plot point to that book and the movie, is this painting. The person to Jesus is right. Yes, to the Jesus' right, there is a woman, and you could see her. It's the person, she has like a pink-ish thing in her uh-huh. outfit, so, and she's leaning away from Jesus. How do we know that's a woman? It could be a feminine man. We're gendering this person, and I don't think... Cause a feminine man in the 1400s? <laughs> they all have long hair and stuff. I guess. You think just because we- the person's wearing pink, that, that means it's a woman? It's, it's a... F- feminine figure. I'm not saying it. I'm saying this is what Dan Brown says. Okay, okay. Take this up with him. It's Dan Brown I should be mad at. Yeah. Well, so I'm on a page where they're labeled, and that one's labeled as John the Apostle. Well, I think the idea, and I haven't read this book in a long time, Da Vinci Code, but I think the idea is that that was the excuse given, but in reality, Da Vinci's hiding a message in Uh, saying that's actually Mary Magdalene. But Gotcha. I could be off on that, but that's what I think is going on. Is there anyone who actually like believes that as a as a theory? I think. Like, do any art scholars are, are they like, yeah, that could be her. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I said to take it up with Dan Brown, but I think, and I'm no expert, but I think he took that from a popular ah, scholarly theory. Okay, he was I don't think citing he made something. It got it, got it. But he he made it famous in his book. Well, anyway, Leo is another one like Van Gogh that we could talk about forever. Mm -hmm. I'll point listeners to uh, episode 147 in the Tennis Archives, where we talked more about Leo in the greatest minds in human history. Again, not the Ninja Turtle. So, if you need another hint... Actually, uh, how about the persistence of memory? No. Really? Great guess. That's a bummer. That's a Salvador Dali. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one with the melting clocks. So I think that's something that a lot of people would recognize as very famous and, and maybe just not know the name of it. That's very true. And that, that's a great point, too, is the name of a painting is so important. Mm-hmm. Okay, then yes, I would like a hint, please. Um, okay, so my hint for you is there's a painting on here that is 
often compared to the Mona Lisa. It depicts a European girl wearing an exotic dress. An oh, is it the girl turban. with the pearl earring? Yes, girl with the pearl earring. Number seven. Now, I had seen this before, but I would not have been able to name it. I mean, the name is very just... It's, again, just describing what it is, sure. Which sometimes are the best names, honestly. Well, uh, yeah, that's probably why it's able to be searched. <laughs> yeah. What's that one with the girl with the pearl earring? Or is it the girl with the pearl earring? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like they named this, yeah, something obscure that no one's ever going to remember. So it's the girl with the pearl earring. It's a girl wearing an exotic dress and what appears to be a very large pearl as an earring. It's from Johannes Vermeer in 1665 and it's housed at a museum in the Netherlands today. This intriguing favorite often gets compared with the Mona Lisa. In 2012, as part of a traveling exhibition, while the museum that it's housed at was being renovated and expanded, the painting went on tour in Japan and the United States. They're taking her around on a bus tour. She's getting around, for sure. She's getting around. Everyone's going to get in a good look at that pearl earring. <laughs> so I looked up a picture of this guy, the artist, Johannes Vermeer. Uh-huh. Have you seen this guy? No. He looks like a pirate, kind of, in the picture I saw. Here, I'll mm. send you the picture I'm talking about. Okay. Oh, he does. He's got a little pirate hat and a little, a little collar. Sure. And wasn't it common to purposely not smile in, in portraits at this time? It's kind of interesting that this guy's wearing like, he looks like he just fucking won the lottery. Yeah, he's a fancy boy. He's a yeah, fancy he's, boy he's and happy. He, he's happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> it almost looks like he's got braces on. He, he kind of has an awkward teenage smile. No offense, Johannes Vermeer, but he's kind of yeah. forcing it a little bit, bud. The portrait of him, to me, is more interesting than the painting of the girl with the pearl earring. Why is everyone talking about this girl and her earring? Look at this guy. He's great. Yeah, I like this guy, but he died young, 43, and he produced relatively few paintings and was evidently not very wealthy, leaving his wife and children in debt at his death. But since the 19th century, his reputation has grown and he is now acknowledged as one of the greatest painters of the Dutch Golden Age. Dutch Golden Age, love it. Dutch. There's only two things I hate in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. And the Dutch. There's an account on Twitter. It's a musical podcast. They said the girl with the pearl earring is their pick because as an art teacher, it's one of the few paintings that kids can always name because you just say what you see. Very good. That's what we were saying earlier. Yeah. It's just a descriptive title. Well-named piece. For if you want people to yeah. talk about your painting. And who doesn't? Let me give you some others that are not in the top 10. Other very famous paintings. Okay. The Night Watch by Rembrandt. Not in here. A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. By oh, wow. That's not in the top 10? Not in the top 10. Right. Vincent van Gogh's Self-Portrait Without a Beard. American Gothic by Grant Wood. I really thought that would be on here. That's the one yeah. with the two farmers, like holding the, the pitchfork. That's very surprising. Mm-hmm. And it was the one that had just popped into my head to guess next. So, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Well, joke's on you. <laughs> joke's on me. Also, The Son of Man by Rene Magritis. Oh, I yeah. I'm butchering the name. Rene Magritte, the one with the apple over the guy's face. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Dogs Playing Poker series by C.M. Coolidge. That's not on the top 10? Not in the top 10, no. (sighs) What are we doing with our society? Well, they got to be more famous if they want to get their asses in the top 10. (laughs) I guess that's fair. They should have made their paintings more naked with more naked people. (laughs) There's not enough naked people. God's not there even once. What are you even doing? (laughs) God's not sticking his finger out, waggling at you, wagging his finger at you, waiting for you to grab it. It's true. Maybe he was scolding Adam in that picture. He was like, get off your lazy behind. Get a job. (laughs) Get out of my garden and get a job. (laughs) If I see you talking to that goddamn snake one more time, Adam. (laughs) Actually, it was Eve that talked to the snake. That is true. Or true or... Was it true? Don't know. So let me give you a hint here for number five. This is a war-themed painting. War-themed. Regarded by many critics as the most moving and powerful anti-war painting in history. By a very famous artist. I'm not good with history, so I'm not... I don't think I'm going to know this one. What is it? Picasso. Oh, is it uh, Guernica? Is that the right one? Yeah. 
This? Yep. Yay! Is that how you say it? Guernica? Yeah, Guernica. Yeah. That's interesting. That's, that's one of the top 10 most searched, huh? Number five. Wow. And this one is a super interesting uh, to look at, too. It's another very chaotic work. It shows the chaos mm-hmm. of war and kind of the horror of war in a very, in a very interesting way. Yeah. It's super weird. You, everyone should look at it while we're going through it here. It's painted by listener of the show, Pablo Picasso, <laughs> in 1937. It's housed at the Museo, <laughs> Museo Reina Sofia in Madrid, Spain. <laughs> this is the most recent painting on the list, 1937. And it depicts the German aerial bombing of the town of Guernica in the Basque region during the Spanish Civil War. Prominent in the composition are a gourd horse, a bull, screaming women, a dead baby, a dismembered soldier, and flames. But it also is Picasso, so it is abstracty. <laughs> it's not like you're looking at these in visceral horror. It's, it's abstract correct, horror, correct. but it is still very scary. No, you, no, you're right. And that's a good clarification. It's, uh, it's Picasso-esque for, yeah. to a T. You kind of kind of look at it for a minute before you start seeing that stuff. Mm-hmm. This painting was moved to the Metro Museum of Modern Art in New York during World War II for safekeeping. So it was briefly housed here in the States. Uh, Picasso requested that it stay there until democracy returned to Spain. Uh-huh. It finally went back to Spain in 1981, six years after the death of longtime Spanish dictator General Francisco Franco. Now, what if Spain said, hey, it's 1981, democracy's back, can we have our painting back? And the Museum of Modern Art in New York was like, nah. No, we like it, actually. We kind of like it here. It really ties the place together. <laughs> We've kind of created like the whole gallery around it and we just really can't move it. Sorry. You're welcome to come and try and take it if you'd like. (laughs) Well, with the other stuff you've been saying about the other works of art, seems like that's kind of how art works, I guess. Yeah. That's the life cycle of of art. You create it, it gets housed in a museum, it gets stolen, gets recovered, it gets sold for $120 million. Well, one more thing about this. So Picasso lived in Paris during the German occupation in war, uh, during World War II. A widely repeated story is that a German officer once asked him upon seeing a photo of Guernica in Picasso's apartment, did you do that? As in, did you paint that? And Picasso responded, no, you did. Ooh. And I just thought, God damn, Ooh. fucking Cold. badass. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So that is Guernica number five. Right. Hey fam, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know I am a sucker for history. And I have a new history podcast that I have been consuming, like some people we know might consume airport hot dogs over trash cans. This is the History Defeats Itself podcast. Every episode, the hosts look at events or moments in the past that often border on the ridiculous and wonder how on earth humans never learn from their history. Each episode, one of the hosts present the topic and the other two don't know what they're going to talk about until it's revealed during the show. A lot like uh, some other podcasts with numbers in their names you might know. History Defeats Itself is available now on any podcast app, including the one you're listening to my voice on now. You can find them on Google, Apple, Spotify, all of them, as well as historydefeatsitself.com. It's a really well done podcast. I highly recommend it. If you listen... Hit me up. Let me know what you thought of it. That's History Defeats Itself. Check them out. What do we still need? So we're waiting on one. I think everyone knows what one is. Six and... One, six, and nine. Nice. So number nine is another Spanish painting by a Spanish artist. Okay. You need more hints? Yes. (laughs) Uh, It's housed in the Museo del Prado in Madrid. It was painted in 1656. Uh, it was commissioned by King Philip IV of Spain, who ruled from 1621 to 1665. Anything? No. Okay, I'll what's, you. what's the subject matter? What, what kind of painting am I looking at here? The painting does double duty as a portrait. It serves as a group portrait of Spanish royalty, but it's also a self-portrait of the artist himself at work on Is the left it, side. Uh, Las Meninas? Las Meninas, yes. Number nine. Rad. That painting is really interesting. Yeah. There's a lot going on in that painting. The artist himself is in the painting. Painting it. (laughs) 
That's fucking cool. He's like, you know, if I, if I have to, I'm going to stare at myself in this mirror all day and just watch myself while I work, put myself in there. Love it. Dude, why not? Yeah, I think that's total <laughs> boss move there. It is. That's a power move. Yeah. I hope he put himself in every painting. He should just hide himself in every painting, <laughs> even if it's like ridiculous. Where's the painter? Where am I? <laughs> Where's Waldo again? <laughs> but less sensual this time. <laughs> The painting is believed to depict the main chamber in the Royal Alcazar of Madrid during the region of King Philip IV of Spain and presents several figures most identifiable from the Spanish court, captured, according to some commentators, in a particular moment as if in a snapshot. Yeah, it does look very candid. That's interesting for a painting like this, yeah. Of this time, 1600s, mm -hmm. right. People didn't do kind of like candid portraits, right? Yeah, yeah. This looks like they weren't posing for a, for a portrait. Right. There's no such thing as a candid portrait with how long a portrait takes in those days. So this is intentionally done. That's really interesting. Yeah. Imagine Instagram influencers back in the 1600s. <laughs> you know, they had to do the selfie, but, you know, they're actually just painting themselves they for just... like three days straight. <laughs> they hire someone and they're like, circulate this to all of the peons. Make them like it. And if they like it, tell them to draw a heart right under it. <laughs> you have to paint a heart. And then you have to deliver to me all the hearts that they said. <laughs> See, this is a whole new business venture. We're stumbling so upon. <laughs> Shame on you for saying that. Las Meninas was uh, housed in the royal palace until 1819. And then it went to the museum where it's still housed today. And it's one of the most analyzed works in Western painting due to the way its complex and enigmatic composition raises questions about reality and illusion and the uncertain relationship it creates between the viewer and the figures depicted. And there's a dog. You can't go wrong with a dog. Yeah, the dog's right there in the front, too. Yeah. Inside, so he must have been a real good boy. <laughs> of course, the star of the painting. Looks kind of like a German Shepherd, maybe, or a mix of one. Who's your good boy? He's sweepy. Who's <laughs> your good boy? Now, when you see a good boy like that, you might walk up to him and kiss him, right? On the forehead? Right on the face. That's right. A standard operating procedure. That's my, <laughs> that's my hint for number six. Oh, it's the kiss. Oh, wonderful. The kiss. Yes. The kiss is number six. Awesome. And now not kissing a dog this time, <laughs> although one could argue that might be better. No, the people in the kiss seem like they're enjoying it. They'd be enjoying it more if they were kissing a dog, but they seem to be fine. So, I don't know. One interpretation of this is that she's being held against her will, getting really? kissed. Hmm. That's kind of what I see, but... I'm just an idiot, so who fucking knows? <laughs> no, but that's the beauty of art, is anyone can look at it, and it's like, okay, well, so we know what the artist intended, in some cases we do, but also art is just about what you see in it and how it makes you feel, so valid. Mm -hmm. Everyone can see it for themselves, except Stevie Wonder. Very mean to call out Stevie Wonder, <laughs> listener of the show, but okay, fine. I'm just stating facts. The Kiss is a relatively recent for this list, painted in 1907-1908 by Gustav Klimt. It's housed in Vienna, Austria, in the Upper Belvedere Museum. Painting depicts a couple embracing each other, or as I think, one's embracing the other. Their bodies entwined in elaborate, beautiful robes decorated in a style influenced by the contemporary Art Nouveau style and the organic forms of the earlier arts and crafts movement. I don't like this part. Arts and crass movements. I love that. Love, intimacy, and sexuality, oh baby, are common themes found in Gustav Klimt's works. This and other works of the time were created, created a scandal and were criticized as both pornographic and evidence of perverted excess. The works had recast the artist as an infant terrible for his anti-authoritarian and anti-populist views on art. Oh... He was, a, he was a rabble rouser. They didn't like him, huh? He wrote, if you cannot please everyone with your deeds and your art, please a few. Again, setting realistic, achievable goals. Hey, I can handle that. Pleasing a few people? Yeah. Instead of pleasing the masses? Yeah. I got that down. Yeah, I can handle that. Yeah. While the kiss isn't for sale, other works by Klimt are bought and sold for huge sums. Oprah Winfrey offloaded the 1907 artwork Portrait of Adele Block Bauer II for $150 million in 2016. I just fucking can't believe <laughs> anything sells for that much. I was going to say, again, that, that amount of money always kind of strikes me dumb for a second. Yep, same. 
but it's not the most because the number one painting on the list sold for what is equivalent to $870 million in today's money. $70 million. Did you hear that? Just short of a billion dollars. Almost a billion dollars. For this one painting. And that painting is? It's Mona Lisa. And it's not the one. There's other ones, right? Or there's similar ones, at least. What do you mean? Similar ones what? Well, like, well, let's just talk about Mona Lisa. It's the Mona Lisa. Okay. The Mona Lisa, it's like such a simple painting on one hand. But on the other hand, there's so much going on, like, in the expression, and we'll talk about it. It's always fascinated me. So it is number one. It's by our boy Leo da Vinci, who also had number two, The Last Supper. He painted this one, though, in 1503 to 1519, and it's housed at the, help me say the museum in Paris. The Louvre. The Louvre. Okay, sorry. (laughs) The Louvre in in, uh, Paris. And for the description, I just wrote, it's a woman half smiling. That's it. It's just a gal. Just a woman sitting there half smiling. Just a lady. (laughs) Just a gal. (laughs) Although I've heard some say that it's a self-portrait of him, right? Like in a female form. Oh, yeah. That is one of the theories that he just kind of feminized himself. Mm Mm-hmm. The sitter in the painting is thought by many to be Lisa Giardini, the wife of Florence merchant Francisco del Gian- Giancar- Giocondo. It's a hard... Listen, you, you are so brave for doing all these Italian words. Thank you. I've, I've really been putting myself out there today. I appreciate that. You're doing a really good job, man. These are hard words. They are. But so a lot of people think it's that lady. So a lot of experts say it's not true. That's not who this is. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of unknown. It's not for sure who the woman in the painting is. It has been described as the best known, the most visited, the most written about, the most sung about, the most parodied work of art in the world. That is interesting. Yeah, it's so very. And, and when we were talking, so this one I actually have seen in person. And when we were talking about like art theft and stuff, mm-hmm. oh my God, the layers of glass in front of this woman. <laughs> it is entirely enclosed so which makes sense well she's worth with a billion dollars yeah Yeah, that's what i was gonna say almost eight uh 870 million she sold for in 2021 dollars it was sold in 1962 so that was the last time it was sold i think Mm. the painting's novel qualities include the subject's enigmatic expression the subtle modeling of forms and the atmospheric illusion yeah, there's a, a great sense of uh, scale and depth to it. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I think that was, that was the point. That was why they hired him. They're like, make it seem like we have a bunch of land, my guy. And mm-hmm. he sure did. Yeah. And I, I've always loved the smile, too, because some people say she's smirking like she knows something. Some people say it's just a normal smile. Some people say she's being forced to smile. She's being held at gunpoint for three to four days while he paints this. Oh, actually, this was painted over 16 years, so. (laughs) Oh, so she probably looked different by the time he was done. Yeah, I didn't think about that, too. Maybe it's like he painted the figure, but like didn't finish it until, I don't know. Yeah. I didn't get that And maybe that's what I was, because I was kind of, I was kind of skimming the Wikipedia article as well. I think I was probably conflating it with a different piece of art when I, when I talked about there being different ones. I think I was thinking of him like having this, like the studio and the the workers under him and kind of Mm. like... I think some of the theories I heard about it in art school were that it wasn't just him that painted it because it was, it took so long and because he had students by that time and everything. So it's unclear if he was, he couldn't have been the only one that did it over 16 years, right? Mm, right. And that's the other fucking thing, man. This shit, like, not just do we have this painting, but we have records of when it was painted, how, where, yeah. like, I just... Well, it's interesting. I mean, like, I think it's what survives versus also the enigma of it. I think a lot of the Mona Lisa, the the draw of the Mona Lisa is that kind of that enigmatic kind of half smile that you were talking about. The, the Mona Lisa's smile is its own cultural icon. Yes. And so, and like you were saying, okay, so we're pretty sure that this is the person who was sitting for the painting. But again, we're not entirely sure. It was painted over a huge scale of time. So who knows? Like, there's enough unknown that makes it really fascinating. I would love to see the Mona Lisa. It's on my bucket list. She's pretty small. How did you say how big it was? I mean, in the in the picture I'm looking at, it looks like an average size painting. It's a portrait. It's pretty. It's pretty yeah. small. It says thirty inches by twenty one inches. So mm, okay, that goddamn that is small. Yeah. Hmm. She's just a little gal. Such a little simple thing from what over five hundred years ago. 
We're still here talking about it. Well, the painting is the earliest known Italian portrait to focus so closely on the sitter in a half-length portrait, according to the Louvre, where it was first installed in 1804. But before the 20th century, historians say the Mona Lisa was little known outside of art circles. But in 1911, an ex-Louvre employee uh, pilfered the portrait and hid it for two years. That theft helped cement the painting's place in pop culture ever since and exposed millions to Renaissance art. Interesting. So this thing actually became so famous because it was stolen. Because of a heist. That's right. Yep. Heist. Uh, The Mona Lisa is one of the most valuable paintings in the world, and it holds the Guinness World Record for highest known painting valuation in history, which is what I told you, the 870 million. So yeah, that's the Mona Lisa number one. And is there any other choice than the Mona Lisa for number one? No, it always had to be her. Yeah. It was always you, baby. It was always you, Mona Lisa. I think this list is largely spot on, but I'd be curious to know what you think. Yeah, there's a couple of them that, uh, that kind of surprise me that are well-known enough to be in the, in the top 10. Guernica surprises me. I didn't know that was well-known enough to be, to be up that high. People searched so often, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back through the top 10 and then I have a few more questions for you. So mm-hmm. the top 10 most famous paintings in the world are number 10, The Creation of Adam. Number nine, Las Maninas. I should give the artist. So 10 was Michelangelo. Number nine, Las Maninas was Diego Velasquez. Number eight, The Birth of Venus is Sandro Botticelli. <laughs> Number seven, The Girl with Pearl Earring is Johannes Vermeer, the pirate. Number six is The Kiss by Gustav Klimt. Number five is Guernica by Pablo Picasso. Number four is The Scream by Edvard Munch. Number three is The Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. Number two is The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. And number one, also by Leonardo da Vinci, is The Mona Lisa. Taking the top two spots, power move. Mm. Give me your top three of these paintings that you think are most, whatever, interesting or speaks to you the most or just your personal favorite. I mean, personal favorite, I already said, Starry Night's got to take the top for me. Mm-hmm. I would put Scream probably number two. Mm-hmm. And then either Kiss or Guernica. Those are both very interesting. I actually have the Kiss hanging up on my house. I can't believe I didn't guess that. So, so maybe that's in my top three. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that, that qualifies it for sure. I'm a big nerd about like the history of the pop culture impact of stuff. Yeah. So like for that reason, Mona Lisa and Last Supper really hard for me to not pick those two but i also love starry night i also love the scream and i also like las meninas a lot just because of the kind of unique setting and uh you know all the stuff we talked about yeah there is a lot to unpack about that painting and i encourage people to to search that because it's it it is really interesting all the because there's a lot going on and there's a lot of like potential symbolism there and stuff so it's really cool and they're all cool paintings And some of them you could look at for a long time and like get something and notice new things as you're looking. That is true. Although that is one thing I will say about the Mona Lisa that is probably um, a bit of a hot take here is when you were talking about like, oh, the birth of Venus is kind of boring. I feel that way about the Mona Lisa. Well, like I, I, there's a lot of intricacies to it, but I'm always like, okay, it's a lady. Yeah. Not, I don't think that's a hot take. I think most people would say, what's so great about it? Right. I don't think it's so great in the fact that it's like, Oh, look at all these different interpretations Visually you can stunning. get out of this lady. Sure. Right. Yeah. I just think it's so interesting, the history of it and the value of it and the yeah. theft, of, like just all the story behind it. Like you it. said, yeah, just the way it yeah. has impacted culture is, is really amazing. Agree. Yeah. But The Last Supper is a more impressive painting than the mm-hmm. Mona Lisa, for sure, just visually. <laughs> it's 20 times the size of it, for starters. That's the thing. Yeah. Like he made one so tiny and one so big. why (laughs) the variety and again leonardo da vinci like a stinky old man with a long beard drawing pictures of helicopters and shit on one day and the next day painting the two most important paintings in all of human history it's just yeah i thought i thought his um the what is it the vitruvian man was going to be on here actually Yeah, and I think it wasn't because it's not a painting. It's a sketch or Interesting, yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I guess so. I, w- I think it would have been. But that's another like very culturally significant, like 
sure. used so often kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I think you did pretty well, but I don't want to end this episode without you uh, plugging your show and telling people what you got coming up on Freudian Sips. Yeah. My show is called Freudian Sips. I'm Freudian Sips pot on pretty much every social, and it is the really fun show that I do with my mom where we talk about brain stuff that interests us. So we've kind of recently talked about music. We did a little bit of a personality test one to kind of tie in with the last one that we did on here. And we, gosh, what do we have coming up? Oh, I think we have a person coming up. We haven't done, um, we love doing like biographies of of famous uh, psychologists. So we've got one of those coming up. So yeah, it's gonna be fun. Can you tell us who? No. Or is it a surprise? Okay, damn. Yeah. Yeah. Freudian Sips Pod. I just listened to it this week, your latest episode on the ass-ass perception thematic test. Seeing all the asses as good as you can. (laughs) Just a really fun pod. The mommy-daughter dynamic is a lot of fun. So, highly recommend it. But, Anna, what is some sort of artistic, artsy kind of sign-off we can do for the folks at home here? Should we just Van Gogh and get out of here? I guess, I guess we'll have to. All right, let's van go and get out of here. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. Give me a shout on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Reddit. You can find us on all those at Tennis Pod. And you might have noticed I was reading off listener feedback today. I'm going to start doing that more often. So please give us a follow and also let me know how good or really, really bad Anna did on today's episode and if we should have her back. <laughs> Anna gave herself a thumbs down. <laughs> I put my art degree to shame. Yeah. My art professors are going to be calling me and be like, uh, I listened to Tennis Pod like I always do, and um, you embarrassed all of us. I'm not sure how many art professors are listening to Tennis Podcast, but pro- well, probably all of them, actually. Probably yeah. a couple, probably all of them. You're right. <laughs> yeah, here. So, yeah. If you were a professor of Anna's in art school, please let me know that, too. I'd love to... I'd love to know more about that. If you're a professor of mine in art school, roast me on Twitter, please. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I can't think of a better way to end than roasting Anna. So thanks again for listening. I'll be back next week with episode 191. 